Welcome to the EMT Pro Podcast, where we deliver relevant EMS content from the field and the classroom each week. Each episode of this podcast can get you one full hour of CE through our partner, emt-ce.com, so head over there for more information. I'm your host, Steve Williams, and with me is Dan and Holly. Guys, say hi. Hi, Steve. Hi, Good Holly. morning. Good morning. We've got a freaking awesome episode scheduled today. We do. I know. I'm excited about it. Yeah. I'm excited, and I'm real curious, because I, I don't know much about this one. Yeah, so... Holly, you want to introduce the topic we're talking about today? And sure, sure. The guy we're going yep. to be. Our friend Chad is a. Uh, well, I guess we could let him introduce himself, so you can. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So our friend Chad's going to come on and talk to us about human trafficking, which I think we, as EMS providers, have a bigger role than we think. And I'm really excited to know about everything. Yeah. Um, what makes people at risk? What we can do as EMS providers? Stuff that he sees. How in the world do you deal with that? Um, so yeah. pretty excited. I, it's one of those things that is in such the, it's in the shadows. You just, you know, unless you're actively dealing with it every day, like this guy is right. It's just not on anyone's radar. No. And yet it's so prevalent and it's, it just blows my mind that it's as prevalent as it I is. Know. So. Like my heart is beating fast right now because yeah. it just makes my blood boil it's that gross. it's a thing. It's yeah. absolutely disgusting. We gotta talk about it and we gotta learn what we can do to identify it so we can help people. We're always thinking about child abuse and elder yeah. abuse, but, uh, human trafficking? Yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, alright, I think we got him on the phone. Chad, are you there? Yep, I'm here. Awesome. Hi, Chad. Hello, good morning. I'll introduce Chad. I met Chad, um, I guess it's been a few years ago now when we were doing some LZ training with the SWAT team and, um, kind of connected with them on, you know, on a level where we never get to actually work with these guys, or if we do, it's only for like five minutes. Um, and so we had a couple other projects together. And then uh, on the side, he also does the trafficking, which has now become his um, full-time job. So it's really fascinating. And I always have like 7 million questions. So mostly he just avoids my phone calls whenever I try to call him. You too, too. Um, <laughs> it's universal. I'm used to it. Um, so anyway, Chad, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Yeah, um, been in law enforcement here in the Portland area for actually going on 20 years. Um, I am, yeah, I'm assigned full-time now. I'm the only full-time human trafficking detective in the state of Oregon. It's gotten, um, well, trafficking has been a problem for, I'd say, a number of years. It's just up until recently that anybody actually recognized that there's enough work out there for full-time positions. And I could say that for just about every agency in the, at least the tri-county area. Um, so we, I, I come from a very progressive agency where they've afforded me the opportunity, which is something I've been wanting to do for a really long time is to work full-time trafficking. And so that's what I've been doing. I'm also assigned to a federal task force that does nothing but human trafficking and um, it's been fantastic. So I've been full-time in human trafficking for probably three years now. Prior to that, I worked child abuse for about seven years. So a lot of what I was doing before, some of those cases would segue into ended up being trafficking cases. So it was it was a nice transition. And got about five years to go until I retire, and I'm planning on finishing out strong working on trafficking. Wow. So you're the only full-time trafficking officer for your agency, or did you say the state no, of Oregon? for the state of Oregon. What? So, yeah, uh, yeah there's, only a, there's only a small handful of agencies that are actually even have identified that trafficking is an issue. Um, so, um, but I'm, I'm the only detective in the state that that's full-time trafficking. So I feel very fortunate that I have that opportunity. 
but a lot of it is um, it's just education. A lot of agencies just don't know what they don't know. Yeah. Um, our, the agency that I work for didn't realize they had a trafficking problem until I started putting together some, some numbers um, and then basically brought those numbers to them and said, how are we going to ignore this problem? And um, so they, they started taking it more seriously. And now that our, our agency has been educated on it, they realize it's a huge problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and now it's just training other agencies on, if you have the internet, you have trafficking going on in your city. So, county. so Jack, can you do me a favor? This is Dan. Can you explain to our listeners exactly what trafficking is? Yeah. Um, there's, there's different forms of trafficking. Um, there's trafficking in the ag- agricultural industry, even in the hospital industry. Um, but mostly it's, it's what I deal with predominantly. It's, um, sexual activity that's involving a child in exchange for uh, something of value. And so that, that said child is treated as a commercial and sexual object to be sold and traded. Jesus, wow. Chad. <laughs> I thought you'd, a, you would uh, get it on me lightly there. but <laughs> No, I mean, wow. it's amazing. So now that you're um, educating other agencies on how – prevalent this is and how important it is do you think that you know by the time you retire you're not going to be the only one in the state that's full-time is it moving in that direction it is moving in that direction but um while at the same time we're dealing with this new um popular phrase defund the police mm-hmm. and so um enforcement of any uh such criminal act takes money mm-hmm. and so um and so each agency has to figure out where they're going to delegate their resources Generally and primarily, most resources get poured into patrol. There's not enough bodies in the street per ratio um, um, from citizens to police. And so generally, investigative units are one of the first things to go. And and so um, and then on top of that, you take something as specialized as human trafficking. There's just no money in the budget for these agencies. And so it's not a problem of um, not wanting to. It's not able to because, uh, you know, Portland, for example, um, the city of Portland, I uh, was pretty progressive with human trafficking enforcement, but, you know, they went through this whole defunding process. And so the first people to go were investigators that were investigating such crimes as human trafficking. So that whole unit's been completely essentially disbanded um, because they needed more bodies back on the road because that's where the, the, the meat and potatoes of police work needs to occur. And the funding needs to happen mm-hmm. on the road bodies. And so it's, it's going to be a funding issue. And I, unfortunately, I don't see that going away anytime soon. It's always going to be an issue in law enforcement. Yeah. How do we compare here in the state of Oregon to the rest of the country? For- well, we're the we're the number one sex industry here in Oregon in the nation. So I think um, it's actually wow. more prevalent here than in a lot of other states. We also deal with things uh, like the I five corridor, the eighty four corridor, these these main arteries that run through our state from you know uh, Washington to California over to uh, Vegas. I mean, they're just um, that's where you're primarily going to see a lot of these. Mm-hmm. trafficking um, things happening around those main corridors. And so we are, I would say we are definitely, I would put um, California, New York, Florida, um, even Washington up there is top, I'd say, states in the nation that are dealing with trafficking. But Oregon is definitely, I would put it, in, I'd say, in the top five. And so, Chad, where, I'm trying to make sense of who are the, the people that are, primarily involved in doing the trafficking? Is it larger criminal organizations? Is it just mom and pop type things that are funding their little habits in their cities or what all the above or something else? 
as far as who's trafficking these victims? Yeah. So primarily, anytime you have a supply and a demand, right, you're going to have a supplier. So it's no different than what we were dealing with and will forever deal with in the drug industry. Mm -hmm. Drugs are always going to be prevalent. And as long as um, there is a a demand for drugs, you're going to have uh, a supplier. Mm -hmm. And so um, what we're we're realizing is a lot of um, yesterday's former drug dealers, they're finding it more lucrative and less risk to, um, to get involved with trafficking because they can layer themselves. Um, they don't have to drive around with five kilos of heroin in their car um, to deliver said product. They can do everything over their phone. Technology is pre- predominantly how trafficking is, is organized, which makes it incredibly difficult to try to enforce and investigate. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so to your question, it's former drug dealers, gang members, um, people that want to make money fast, um, live in that flashy lifestyle. They found that the best and the easiest way to do that is through trafficking. Very lucrative. It's nobody's enforcing it or investigating it because of lack of resources, and it's incredibly hard. Even with me having a full time position, it's incredibly hard to take these cases from arrest to prosecution. Wow. There's a lot of layers that happen in between it getting to that point. And generally, you're dealing with very uncooperative victims. Mm-hmm. So I'm not dealing with victims that are. It's one of the only crimes that I'd say that we investigate in law enforcement. Where the victims are certainly not jumping up and down, waving their arms, saying, I'm, I've been a victim of this crime. I want you to go arrest this person. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Mm-hmm. And that's where the education piece is super important because generally it's, you're pulling over a car at 2 o'clock in the morning with some North Portland gang member that has a 15-year-old girl in the car. And you go up and approach the car and you try to develop a rapport with the girl, figure out who she is, where she's going, who she's sitting next to. And she generally will give you the finger, tell you to go after yourself. And so we're dealing with uncooperative people that don't want to be victims. And so um, there's a lot of work that goes into getting them to where they feel comfortable and safe wanting to uh, hold their, their that person accountable. And so it's a multi-collaborative approach. So it's not just, <coughs> excuse me, it's not just law enforcement. We have to have a good working relationship with the DA's office. Victim advocates are, are probably our biggest and best resource because these girls, it's an ongoing relationship you have to maintain with them. It's generally they're not going to come in and give you a full confession the first time you talk to them. Mm-hmm. You have to peel back the layers of getting them to where they even feel comfortable talking to me. They generally hate law enforcement. So what so you makes have to- them reluctant <clears throat> to seek help or get out of the business or talk to you? Are they, do they fear for their lives? A lot of it's fear-based. A lot of it is they don't even realize that, they, that they're being victimized. It, it, they're so ingrained and they've been so... Um, groomed, if you will, um, to, to, to basically desensitize them that, that what they're doing is going out and having sex with complete strangers and then handing all of their money over to their pimp. They don't see anything wrong with that because a lot of these girls feel like they have a relationship with their pimp, that this is just a means to an end. It's to get them so they can get to a better place and have a, have a happy life together. It's a lot of, you know, you got, I mean, these girls are, um, well, the average age of like girls entering the sex industry is 12 to 14 years old. So you're taking girls that have absolutely no real life experience at that point, other than they've been traumatized a lot, right? And you have somebody that comes in and wants to um, give them a place to stay, give them safety, give them security, give them the possibility of having a great relationship and lots of money. And, and so that, that lure to them keeps them, attached to these pimps for an unnecessary long period of time. You have to pull them completely out of that, that cycle that they're in 
um, in order to get them to where they finally realize, wow, I've been victimized this whole time and I didn't even realize it. So, Chad, and these are all troubled youth. Yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. So, are they are they obviously the runaways, um, battered kids? Where does it all begin? Yeah. So the the I say the average number of like foster placements for traffic youth is around eleven. So these these kids are in and out of foster facilities their entire life. Um, they're they're constant runaways. Um, the uh, the percentage of teens like they get recruited. Um, 48 hours after they run away is one in three here in Oregon. Wow. Recruited? One, oh, my gosh. So these, they know what to look for. They identify these victims quicker than you or I could ever, um, and, and they're able to do it through social media means. They're able to do it through walking around the mall, and just they, they can handpick these girls. They know what they're looking for. Hmm. And so, um, so these generally these victims don't come from a place of a stable home environment, right. and so they get, they get bounced around a lot. A lot of these girls, they fall into trafficking or are currently receiving uh, services um, to help them. So, so they're actually getting involved with this while they're receiving services from the state to try to get you know social services. And is kind them. of a, an allure for some of these pimps that you know they're getting a you know perhaps a check from the government uh, from the state, I should say, each month, and that's kind of a. I, the reason, I, I've had people. I actually just had a call this last week where. This girl was a runaway. She had just turned 18, and she was getting all of these requests from guys in their 30s and 40s to basically, you know, do this kind of stuff. And she was talking about how they just want me for the check that I get each month. And it was it was really interesting talking to her. But that's what made me think about that. Is that it's something ab- it's absolutely it's absolutely true? Yeah. Um, and there are a lot of different um, sex trafficking. Uh, business models, I'll, I'll use that term very loosely, that will allure these these, these girls in. Um, a lot of times they're commercial front businesses, but we actually, I have a couple of cases where they're actually um, stores in the mall that are disguising themselves as selling merchandise um, and they are, they're a front for trafficking. Um, massage parlors are becoming really prevalent. Mm-hmm. Nail salons. Um, the internet is still, I'd say, first and foremost. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of something called Backpage. It was shut down by the mm-hmm. feds probably three or four years ago. It's basically, it was just an online prostitution ring and these girls can go on there and they can, they could post their ads and then Johns will show up and have sex in exchange for money. It went on for years. And so the, the feds came in and shut it down. Well, when they shut it down, three more popped up. Now we're dealing with skip and adult friend finder. I mean, they're, they're just, they're everywhere. So internet based is definitely the easiest way to run a trafficking organization. Um, but the, the old adage of, you know, there's some white van that pulls up and abducts a child and then it, it gets her involved in the sex industry. It just doesn't, doesn't happen that way. It's, um, it's right in front of our faces every day. We just don't know what we're looking for. So Chad, how many Basically, cases are you? Basically my child can never leave the house. Right. Right. I've got a daughter that's about to start kindergarten and mm-hmm. she's going to homeschool her till she's 45. So, <laughs> um, yeah. What, um, how many cases are you guys tackling a year? I guess you, because it's a department <laughs> of one, correct? Yeah, well, so, like, right now I have a, an active caseload of 14 different cases of different um, victims that are being trafficked, and I have generally 30 to 60 days that I have to have that case wrapped up. Um, and, and, and it's a, it's a never-ending, and, and remind you, that's just, that's because that's all that I can physically and mentally manage. Sure. I get, um, a, 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 
triple amount of that cases that come in that I review every month that I have to just make the determination that I don't have enough resources or availability to work this case right now. And so in those cases, generally what I do is I plug them in with my victim advocate groups that start working on these girls and getting to where they feel comfortable talking with me. Um, but the, the biggest problem I face, I, I would be much more successful if we had a place to take these girls once we pull them out of the life, right? Because it's the same thing if you have a heroin junkie and you walk up to that, you walk up to that heroin user and you take away his, his supply for the day mm-hmm. and you shake your finger at him and say, don't ever do that again. Well, we both know what's going to happen. Right. right. It, it's no different than this. So we pull these girls, we come in, we feel good because we, we, we pull them away from their pimp and we, you know, take her to jail for prostitution or whatever. And we high five each other and we're like, Oh, you know, successful day. We got her away from her pimp. Well, she's going to be released from jail and back to their pen before I finish my paperwork. Mm-hmm. So it's a never ending revolving door. Mm-hmm. And, and it's because we don't have the facilities to house these girls, to put them in a safe environment, to get them off of whatever drugs they're using, to get them to where they feel safe and secure. It's a long term mm-hmm. approach to, to fixing this problem. And it's no different than uh, the problem we're dealing with overseas. Everybody wants to combat trafficking. So we want to go overseas. We want to rescue these girls out of these villages. Okay. Well, that's great. But then where are you going to put these girls? Are you going to take them home with you? Right. And, and we just, we don't have the means of, of the long-term care. And, and there's not, uh, I can't think of any cases that require more long-term care than oh, um, yeah. trafficking. Mm-hmm. They, re, they relapse all the time. Mm-hmm. I right, get, because where I else get, are they going to go at this right. point? They don't have a place sure. to live, probably. Right. They don't have income. Right. They don't have anywhere to eat. And as messed up as this lifestyle is, it provides some level of security and exactly. safety. Even though it's completely, they they will literally, they will literally get the shit beaten out of them every day, and but then they still feel like uh, they're in a safe environment going home to their pimp. Mm-hmm. It's it's an absolute, it's it's a, I don't understand the mindset, but it goes to show you the level of control that mm-hmm. that these pimps have over these girls. Wow. So I got a quick question for you. Actually, I got two. So what is a? I assume that there are are boys who are trafficked, 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 trafficked as well. There are. Yes, there What's are. the percentage? What do you think the difference is between the two? I'd say if I had to put a number on it, I'd say maybe 5, 5%, 5% are, are okay. boys. Okay. Um, but those numbers are growing. They're, 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 the industry is growing with a, a, a need for um, more boys. And, and, and the pay um, is gen- it's generally more lucrative if you have a boy victim because it's just it's, it's so much more difficult to find. Okay. But um, it's, it's growing. Second question is, I mean, in my eyes, you're a saint, right? You're doing an amazing job. You're doing it without a lot of support. How do you, how do you keep going when you don't have the the wins that would like? I need wins. I need coins. Mm-hmm. You know, I had this cardiac arrest day, so I get a coin. You know, I need these wins to keep my my mental health in in check. How do you do it? Well, it's funny you should mention that. So I'm, I'm talking to Holly about this. So I'm going through a um, clinical mental health counseling degree program right now for my master's because I, I think that it's a, it's a need in law enforcement. Not just for my job, but like I said, I worked child abuse for seven years and I saw my, my eyes saw more than my soul can handle. And I think a lot of people in the EMS field would, can, can um, relate to that. So you, you have to have outside outlets to deal with that, whether it be physical exercise, um, space, or you, just fill in the blank or whatever, um, you, whatever outlet you need, uh, they're able to, to have, but I'm, I'm working on, uh, finishing up my master's degree program because I think that there is a need that, um, 
and it's going to and it's going to grow even more so. I think over the next few years, just with the lack yeah. of support that mm-hmm. that, um, that we're receiving Absolutely. in this career field. So, wow. But good good positive outlets and being able to shut it off when you go home. It's been difficult because um, I get phone calls, you know, ten o'clock at night from these girls that um, you know I have to maintain this ongoing working relationship with them. And so they're not calling you between 7am and 5pm when you're, when you're at work, they're calling you at 10 o'clock at night when you're trying to close your eyes and they're calling you because they have some emergency or um, maybe they have court in the morning that you've been working on together for three months and you're all set up to go. And then they call you the night of and they say, I'm not going to show up tomorrow. And if you try to come over here and pick me up, I'm going to run away from home. And then you're, you're starting all over again. So it's, um, it's a lot, it's a lot of work. Chad, what would be, um, what would be some tips, I guess, or things you would want EMS providers to know uh, when it comes to having this in the back of their brain when they're going on calls and maybe some signs and things like that? Yeah, so we're working on trying to provide better education. I will say our relationship with um, EMS has been pretty my, – my personal relationship with EMS has been really good. And I think it's they're, they're, they know human nature just as well as we do. They know human behavior, and so they can they can sense when something's not right. Maybe they're dealing with a victim that her injuries don't match up with what her story is, or there's some controlling guy in the background that seems overly invested in where she's going, and um, just those little precursors or indicators filtering that information down to law enforcement. A lot of the cases that I get start off with because there's a 15-year-old girl that showed up in the ER, and she was beaten up badly. And she's just not providing a, a reason, a, a, a valid reason of, for her injury. She's saying she got jumped or, or whatever. And so getting that phone call on the front end, so then we can maybe get some victims, victim advocates on scene to start kind of breaking down those layers and getting them to feel comfortable. Because once they leave the hospital, they're in the wind and we're never going to see them again. Mm-hmm. And those, those injuries, the evidence of those injuries disappears. And then um, there's, so just getting in on the front end, having good communication with law enforcement and vice versa. We need to have a good working relationship with EMS. We get frustrated sometimes because, you know, I'll go into an ER and the first thing I hear is HIPAA. And if I hear the word HIPAA one more time, um, but I understand that they have a job to do and that they're not going to risk their job to give me information that I feel I need right now that, um, that I I can't get because it's a HIPAA violation. So, um, just having a mutual understanding of each other's jobs and its limitations and just good communication and education, really good education. And we're working on that. Yeah. So how do you get around the, you know, I, I, I can tell you the people right now that would, you know, freeze up the second a, a police officer shows up and I can tell you the ones that would welcome a conversation um, when it comes to, you know, sharing information appropriately and doing it the right way. How, how do you guys, um, are you making phone calls to superiors to chat with that crew? Um, are you got, how are you handling it? I guess is my, my question. I'd say the, the, the way that I'm handling it is that I have a continuing ongoing working relationship with the same people because I'm doing this job full time now. So I see a lot of the same faces, whether it be in a hospital setting or a whatever setting I'm, I'm dealing with a lot of the same faces. So having a good working relationship, I'm able to kind of circumvent, I think, um, maybe another deputy that were to come in that nobody knows from Adam and they don't, they don't have that trust um, and understanding with each other. So I'm telling you relationships are everything. Um, That's true. With this kind of work. What really about, um, doesn't that kind of fall under mandatory reporting? Like all of right. us in this room are mandatory reporters because we're healthcare mm-hmm. providers. And if a 15 yep. year old comes in beat up, that's child abuse. And so mm-hmm. therefore I should probably report that to someone. Right. Yeah. That would be it, a way to maybe get around the HIPAA. It does. It absolutely does. Um, 
but just being able to vet out when, when something makes sense or when it doesn't. And just, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, like I have uh, a lot of, uh, EMS staff at these different hospitals have my direct number. I went in there and gave them my business cards and said, Hey, if something just doesn't appear right, I'd rather you call me. I don't care what time it is and let me come out and diagnose whether or not this is something that, um, is worthy of me looking into, or I can wait until the morning. But, um, yeah, I think it's, uh, I think that's, super important but um ems just like law enforcement we were just uneducated on a lot of these things um because it wasn't we didn't we didn't realize that it was right in front of us the whole time like i i i, I conduct training for our patrol guys and i tell them that, that that example i gave you the 15 year old girl and the gang member um if you see that that situation play out and that girl's being uncooperative what's your natural reaction when somebody tells you to pound sand or go f yourself you know, right. F you too, right? right. Uh, if you don't want my help, I'm not going to give it to you. And we have to change that that mindset. And I think that's universal, whether it's law enforcement or EMS. That no, mm-hmm. that girl, that girl's in trouble, and she's um, that's the one you need to give your attention to because there's something going on there. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then we're training our guys to separate these people. We literally have deputies coming up to the car and trying to interview this, this victim in front of her pimp. So of right. course, you know what the, the reaction is going to be. It's, like, that's just 101. You've got to find a reason to get her out of the car. Maybe you've got to get creative with how you do that. Maybe it's curfew, you know, which isn't something we normally jam up for. Um, but in this certain circumstance where you can tell something isn't right here, maybe you jam her up on a curfew violation because that gets her away from temp. Now you get her into a, a juvenile facility and you can really start diagnosing, hey, what's really going on? And you'd be surprised how often these girls will open up if they don't feel like there's this control standing over the top of them because they're fearful. They're, they're not going to tell you anything if they're within earshot of their pimp. So, okay, so this, I mean, until Holly actually talked about you a couple, three weeks ago, it was not, you know, you'd sit in a bathroom stall and you'd read the little flyer about sex trafficking and, and you'd think, oh, that doesn't happen here. That's That happens in yeah. the country, right? So yeah. how, if I'm working in a city that doesn't have you in it, and I suspect it. It's just like child abuse. I just I just call the police in and I, I say, This is what I saw, this is what I feel, so on and so forth and let and then they go with it. Is that how it rolls? Yeah. The first thing is just getting documentation on file, um, more importantly. And and a lot of these cases I get calls from, from agencies around the state saying, Hey, we got this report that came in and, and, and this is what it indicates. What do you think? And I'm like, uh, yeah, that is a clearly that girl's being trafficked. And then I have a lot I have a lot of resources I work with. Um that are non-law enforcement, that are um, non-profit groups, that um, they, so like these are the people that used to go hunt Osama bin Laden. They received all this just amazing uh, work experience on the job in the military, hunting down terrorists. And so they, they get discharged after 20 years and they're like, man, I got all this experience and I don't know where, what to do with it. So there's, there's a couple of non-profit groups that I've worked with that have been phenomenal and they can get into social media way better than I ever could. And so like in the example you just gave, and so I'll and, I, and I'll and I'll get a phone call from some neighboring agency saying, "Hey, I got this. What do you think?" I will give that information to um, to this nonprofit group, and they'll go to work on her, and they'll they'll get into her social media platforms, and they can find out more intel just through getting into her social media. And I've had literally what? Okay, here's her pimp, here's her site that she's posting on, and then I can take that information and run with it. But it all starts with that that basic preliminary report. Because some uh, first you know mandatory reporters spotted something that didn't seem right. It's amazing. You'd be surprised that some of the some of the uh, cases we've been able to successfully prosecute off of what started off just to be this doesn't look right. I need to call somebody. All right, let me tell you what I didn't do. 
<laughs> so this this is after Holly talked to me about you, and I was working a vac- vaccination drive through clinic, and these there were these two Asian ladies in this car and this older white dude, and um, the late, one was younger and one was older, and they were dressed to the nines, and they wouldn't look at me at all. I mean, I'm giving them this vaccination. They wouldn't look at me. The dude was, you know, old and friendly, and it just seemed really, really weird. And so they drove off. I felt really weird. I shut down my lane. I went and got their information. And so they all lived in the same house. So that made me feel better. Mm-hmm. So when you have something like that, you know, when it's just a brief encounter, what would you do? I would, I would, same thing. I would still make some kind of disclosure to law enforcement so we can get it documented. A lot of these cases maybe don't have legs um, on the front end. So like what you said, it's played out and there was nothing. But later we find out down the road six months from now when I'm starting to pull historical reports because I find out that there actually is some validity to this. Those historical court reports are huge for me. That's how I build my cases for trial. Because so I, 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 should I, have, I should have done something. I, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty. Oh, um, no, but you but can tell me, sir. <laughs> you can, <laughs> this is a learning environment. <laughs> right. I would always lean more towards getting something on record because um, uh, the, 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 I'd say the most effective way that I can build my case is through historical reports. It's no different than a domestic violence situation, right, where um, you have one isolated incident where said subject assaults his wife or girlfriend and then it goes to trial. Um, it, those are a lot more difficult cases to prove than if I can show up on the, on the stand and say, well, this guy's beating this girl up on 11 different times and I have 11 different police reports generated where the same thing happened. It's, it's a lot easier for me to prove, to have that burden of proof that I need mm-hmm. beyond a reasonable doubt. It's no different with these kinds of cases. If I can show a documented history through historical reports and then I take that case file down to the DA's office and I'm like, no, this is a problem. Um, so those, those cases are super helpful. And sometimes, sometimes they don't grow legs and sometimes they do. But the ones that never grow legs are the ones that are never reported. Exactly. That's so I know. I just think like, of course, hindsight. You now I'm thinking of the last 20 years I've been treating right. patients. Um, but I can see a lot of EMS providers taking the stand. Well, I don't want to bug anyone. If this, isn't, yeah. if this exactly. isn't anything, I don't want to. I know you guys are busy. I don't want to create more work for nothing. Yeah. I like what you said, Chad, that, you know, all these historical reports is what puts people away. So mm-hmm. even if it's something small or we get that gut feeling, I think we're right. all really good at gut feelings. Um, you're saying report it. Yeah. And so what you're saying is you're you're you basically we're trying to do a good deed and not wanting to inconvenience law enforcement because it's probably nothing um, that outweighed the. Um, you know what, it's better safe than sorry. We all do that. We don't want to inconvenience people. You know, oh, they're too busy. And, um, but that that's our job. And unfortunately, you are going to get some deputies. They're going to roll up and they're going to, or officers, and they're going to take your report and they're going to roll their eyes because they have no idea why they're taking this report. And it's BS and they have much better things to be doing. Well, um, I could tell you a lot of those reports are end up with what um, helping me get a successful prosecution. So I would say um, inconvenience us as much as you can when you see something. You guys are... Like I said, you guys know human behavior just as much as we do. We're very similar creatures, and so you know when something isn't right. And so if it if it doesn't feel right, it's better to get it documented because it's, it's hard to go back later and do it. Right, mm-hmm. kind of got to kind of got to do it right right when it happens. And Chad, so are you going to get? I know that there's a national. I just googled it. The National Human Trafficking Hotline. Are you getting um, information from that hotline disseminated to you? 
Yeah, point. so we get it a couple different ways. So, like, when you call into that trafficking hotline number, um, that, that goes to our, to our FBI office, um, um, which I'm attached to, and then I'm, it also goes to uh, each respective agency through jurisdiction. So, like, if you call in and say, hey, uh, this X, Y, and Z happened in the city of Milwaukee, then um, the feds are going to get it. And a lot of times um, that'll, they'll filter it down to the city of Milwaukee Police Department and or um, it'll go directly to Milwaukee Police Department. And sometimes they'll, then they'll reach out and contact me and say, hey, this is what we got. What do you think? So it went, to answer your question, when you call that hotline, it'll get routed to the respective uh, jurisdiction in okay. one form or another. And we should mention that the National Human Trafficking Hotline is 888-373-7888. And you yeah. can also text help or info to 233-733, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. And Chad, um, I don't know if you want to tell us who these nonprofits are that you that work with you, if they're sort of on the down low because you don't want people don't want them finding out who they are. But is there, like, I'm feeling compelled right now. Like, I want to do this. You're right. <laughs> who mm-hmm. can I give money to? I mean, I know nonprofits, they're not are so hard to run and these guys and gals seem like they're such a huge part of your investigation how do we support things like that I'll tell you what so i'll give you both groups that i work with um and they're dealing with um domestic um, trafficking situations that i work with uh daily um one of them is a nonprofit group it's a, it's a victim advocate group called safety compass you can google them they're they're uh, it's online um, that's a local group. They work Multnomah County, Washington County, Marion County, and Clackamas County. <clears throat> they are probably, the, in my opinion, the cat's meow for um, helping us successfully prosecute these cases because they're a, a, a group of victim advocates that do a really, really good job of keeping these girls from relapsing. They, they handle the maintenance stage of um, keeping these girls out of the life and moving forward with helping me prosecute the cases. I can't say enough good things about them. The other group is called Guardian Group, and that's the group I was talking to you guys about. That um, they, they a lot of their um, funding happens through citizens just giving them money, and um, they are the group that um, goes to work on um, the, the, the technology side of things. Mm-hmm. And then they and then they give me the information that I need. Very very important. I could I don't have enough hours in my day to do all the work that they do. So they, they make my job exponentially easier, and they're uh, just a great group of. Um, you know, just they love their country and, and they're passionate about the work that they do. That's amazing that it has to be a nonprofit and yeah. that's, this is not funded. Yeah, it is. It's amazing. It's, it's amazing. sad. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a frustrating point for me for sure, but it's just the reality of the situation we're in right now, unfortunately. So mm-hmm. these nonprofit groups that come together, um, they're what uh, we couldn't do it without them. So, so Chad, one more question for you. Well, probably more than that, but yeah, we um, got a bunch. <laughs> so let's say we go back to, uh, I had that suspicion and I, I contact my city. I'm in a different county than you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so let's say I have that police officer who is rolling his eyes and it never gets to where it should be. Is it still, I mean, there's not, I still go through that chain of command. I still go through my local police department. And hopefully it gets to where or it call needs the to hotline. Be. Like, what's the best way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I would I would recommend calling the local jurisdiction first, um, and and at least getting and, and the way that you can kind of assure that you're getting something, some kind of feedback from whoever you're dealing with that the problem is being dealt with and or at least addressed 
is ask them for a case number or an incident number. Anytime you call the police and report anything, it generates a case number or an incident number. An incident number would mean something that doesn't necessarily generate a report, but dispatch essentially sets up a call. And each call is assigned an incident number. And the, the officer or the deputy can put remarks in that call, uh, even if they don't write an actual police report. So you could then follow up at a later date if you wanted to and be like, hey, I, the officer gave me this incident number. I was just curious to see what happened. If it really, if it was just, you just felt like you just had a negative interaction with that person. Um, or a case number, which means that they actually wrote a police report, which is what you should always try to encourage. Like, hey, I just didn't feel right about this situation. I would appreciate it if we can just get some kind of documentation. And, oh, hey, do you mind if I get that incident number from you or case number? Just so you get that instant feedback that um, it's being addressed and not just, uh, you know, you're getting eye rolls on the other end of the phone. And also, uh, you know, through your department you work for, I know that we we write a, an SER, a special event report or something and that unusual. goes to we, have, we call it unusual occurrence yeah, yeah exactly and that goes to our our main thing and so it's so mm-hmm. it's in the system and they're addressing it at that level so yeah i'd really say at that point you've done your due diligence unfortunately it's just it goes down to a lack of resources um right. for a lot of agencies and that's the frustration that i've been dealing with and so we generally just pick the lowest hanging fruit of the day that's how we don't want to do our jobs every day um and uh it, i don't know if that's going to change anytime soon but it's just um I'm pushing for more education and stuff like that to get other agencies involved and to realize that it is a problem in their city. But it's, um, we're still kind of on the front end of this. I mean, like I said, I'm the only one, full-time one in the state, so we have a long ways to go. But it really begins with education. Once, once I think generally officers and deputies all want to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, but yeah. if, they, if they're uneducated on, on, the, on the topic at hand, they may not realize um, the significance of how important it is to document it. Um, but we're working on that. So I think if you just did your due diligence of just calling in and reporting it, it's really, it's kind of out of your hands at that point. You've right. done, you've done what you were supposed to do. Okay. Wow. There's so much I'm just absorbing right now. Like I, I can't, <laughs> we're going to have to have a follow up <laughs> conversation. Dan touched on it earlier. The, the mental health component, which is something we talk about a lot um, on this podcast is just, going through my brain a thousand times a minute. Like how that codependent oh. relationship is so strong. Yeah. You know, the well, and then reinforcement and then there's the, you know, thinking about the victims Absolutely. and then thinking about like, you know, the stuff you're seeing, Chad, like I, I, I can, I can, no, no, and I, not I don't know how instant you don't rewards, lose. you know? Yeah. I mean, well, it must um, be pretty rewarding to see some of these people get prosecuted. Yeah. I would say, well, I was going to say guys, but that's sexist. Cause I know there's a lot of women involved right, as well. Right. It makes the case that much more um, rewarding because when, when you were able to work through all of the inherent challenges, so just like some of the exa- some examples of some inherent challenges I face prosecuting. Number one, keeping in touch with the victim, probably the most difficult thing. So we have that initial contact and then they disappear and generally won't answer their phone for me again. So I have to go find out where they're at. I have to go hunt them down. I have to drive up, show up at their house without calling them, let them know, letting them know that I'm coming. Um, very difficult to deal with. There's the historical or the history of, um, you know, just sexual and physical and emotional abuse that these victims have had leading up to this happening. So generally, most of them, a uh, high number of them have had pre- history of sexual or emotional or physical abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, many got manipulation by the pimp. I can't put the pimp in jail until I have a case against them. So the pimp's running around during this whole time basically pulling the strings with these victims, manipulating them to get them to where they're fearful to want to testify. Mm-hmm. Um, 
kids are threatened with their lives, their families' lives are threatened. Um, so they generally run right back into the hands of the people that are trying to hurt them. Um, these girls are chronic runaways. They don't come from a good home environment. So I'm dealing with, uh, if you want to call them parents loosely, on often, oftentimes, that aren't doing their jobs as parents to keep these kids accountable, keeping them at home, keeping them in school, keeping them off the drugs. So the parents are a whole other issue that I'm dealing with, assuming that they have a family structure, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the absence of family or the family dysfunction is, is huge for these cases. And then you got the, the limited resources and availability of resources. We'd never have enough resources to deal with the problem. And I'm just, I'm one person. Mm-hmm. And so it's, um, I, oftentimes I have to pick the lowest hanging fruit of the day. Sure. Which is still it's a to, problem. So right. you're still making a difference, even if it feels right. like low hanging fruit. I mean, if it's just one person you're helping, it's still amazing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Chad, so what, what lot, do you think the, the ratio, you know, I'm looking at some of these resources on the web and they're talking about basically the two types of tra- trafficking or sex trafficking and labor trafficking. Mm-hmm. What, what, what would the ratio be there, do you think? Um, I, any idea? Uh, sex trafficking is way more prominent. We don't deal with it so much here, and I'd say anywhere in, in the tri-county area, per se, of, mm-hmm. of the labor trafficking. It is, a, it is a thing, and I have had some cases on my desk out of, um, uh, I've had one out of, a good one out of Marion County and one out of uh, Forest Grove that I, that I dealt with. But um, the, the labor trafficking is not near as prominent, I'd say, it's, if I had to put a number on it. <laughs> Do you think they're intertwined? A lot of times they are. Yeah. So the way that they're being trafficked via, through labor, it's also through sex as well, absolutely. And a lot of times where you see that the trafficking or the, the labor trafficking issues are where you have these these camps where these migrant workers uh, are um, sleeping at. So they're eating and sleeping in these places, and they're just generally not well taken care of, and they're not regulated. And that's what oftentimes where you'll see labor trafficking. But they're more often than not not reported either. That's really interesting. My one of my close friends does. She's a liaison between the school that in my area and the migrant worker kids because we have a huge prevalence of migrant workers, and so she kind of goes between the school and the families to make sure the kids are going to school, getting food, if they need resources. And boy, I bet she, if she had any kind of training on this, would be able to pick out a lot of red flags right absolutely and that and that goes that coincides with uh, same thing with child abuse when i you know when i was assigned child abuse most of the cases that i got came through the schools because mm-hmm. these kids would go to schools and they'd speak with their counselors and their counselors like that's not right and then they would they're mandatory reporters and so they would report the information um so yeah it's uh, generally law enforcement are the last people that somebody runs to in these types of cases uh-huh. mm-hmm. they've been a victim of a crime so it's going to come out through other means other mandatory reporters or, or whatnot I'm looking at this really interesting diagram uh, that the Polaris project has on their website mm-hmm. um, it says sex trafficking is basically street and online prostitution residential and commercial front-end brothels and truck stops uh, pi- primarily, and then labor trafficking is usually businesses, farms, domestic work, uh, mm-hmm. begging and peddling and stripping, and then they're all kind of intertwined in this diagram, and at the heart of the diagram is power and control. Yeah. yeah. And it is intertwined with physical abuse, uh, using privilege to treat victims like servants, uh, economic abuse, uh, holding things over their head like debt and you know things that could never be repaid. Uh, coercion and threats, intimidation, emotional abuse, isolation, denying, blaming, minimizing, 
and uh, sexual abuse. It's it just, again, more like mind-numbing information that is like, so hard to believe. So many layers to it. Treat others this way, but that's just a complete and utter just dehumanization and objectification of of these girls. Um, and then you combine that with the narcissist uh, male entitlement, with power, and 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 uh, influence. Um, and then you combine that with just a social media is a is a horrible, nasty animal that we deal with now. That it's really, really it makes it, it makes my job incredibly difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's most of my cases now are successfully prosecuted through cell phones. Oh, is that right? Wow. Well, that that would make sense. Yeah. I mean, people are accessing the internet through their phones right. more mm-hmm. than they are on desktops now. We had this yeah. interesting conversation um, over coffee, and I'm like, how do I get my teenager to not be sex trafficked? Yeah, I mean, let's talk about it. Let's. Yeah, like one thing that he said was that um, social media, of course, is something that they track for a lot of these cases, except what was it, Snapchat? was the one yeah. that you can never get any information from. It's horrible. I hate dealing with Snapchat. But yeah, it's, um, so generally these victims, to, to Holly's point, you know, they're, they're under 18. Um, they are vulnerable somewhere throughout their day where they're unattended. Maybe it's something as simple as walking to school or going to the store every day or the mall. Um, they have access to a computer. They are um, attracted to uh, consumer goods. They which is how can you not if you're a teenage girl now? Absolutely. That's, no, that. that's every teenage <laughs> boy and girl. Yeah. <laughs> um, they actually have a desire to develop some kind of romantic relationship. They have it in their mind what that looks like. Um, generally, they, they feel insecure. They want to feel more grown up. A lot of these girls, these victims that I'm dealing with, they're 14 and they look like they're 22. Mm-hmm. Um, they feel misunderstood. They fight with their parents all the time or they feel like they have parents that don't care. Um, they want more independence and they'll, they'll, they want to test boundaries and take risks. So as a parent, just keep it, just, just remembering all of those things. Um, and, and, and decreasing the vulnerabilities your child has as much as humanly possible. And, um, like I said, for the most part, the most the biggest demographic of what we're dealing with with victims are, it's a, it's a terrible, um, home life. That's a, Number one is, is the home life is not good. Parents that uh, generally don't care have their own substance abuse issues, um, and they, these these kids become chronic runaways, and that's what leaves them most vulnerable. Like I said, one in three within forty eight hours are um, going probably going to get hit up about being trafficked, and that doesn't and that doesn't look like hey, would you like to be? Uh, can I be your pimp? It's it's, it's right. you know hey, you're pretty. Um, you ever thought about modeling? Have you ever thought about maybe getting into, uh, you know, uh, doing movies or commercials? Guess what? Or a record contract? Guess what? I have the contacts to make that happen. Mm-hmm. And so that's how the relationship starts. Wow. Why don't we teach this in schools? Yeah. Like, I wish we did. High kids, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. or high school. We kids. are way, we are way behind on that. Absolutely. How many, let's say you have one pimp. How many girls do you think one pimp, just in your experience, would be controlling. That's a great question, and 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 it's a two part question. So generally, most most of the pimps that I'm dealing with have anywhere from three to five girls, um, and that's what they can effectively manage. Um, but within that, there's an actual they call it a hierarchy, or there's a there's a, a, a chain of command. 
So um, if you guys ever heard the term bottom bitch? No. <laughs> no. I'm bottom, bottom bitch. So bottom bitch is actually it's a compliment to the to the girl. If you're a bottom bitch within a, 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 a pimping organization, it means you're kind of running the show. And it's what the pimps, it's, it's their layer of protection. They will use the bottom bitch. So generally the, the bottom bitch is somebody um, that has been in, been with the pimp for quite some time and um, has elevated their status within the organization to start managing the other girls. So they're no longer out performing sexual acts, but they are managing the other girls. They call it a stable. So within oh. the stable, you have these girls at work. The bottom bitch runs the stable. Mm-hmm. And so um, what better layer of protection does a pimp have than having another female that's managing Jeez, female? Yeah. And so n- now you no longer have the pimp showing up at these, you know, that, that's posting these ads for these girls. And these Johns are like, hey, come on over to this address. And you're no longer having the pimp driving up, dropping these girls off. You have the quote-unquote bottom bitch doing it. And so if you get stopped by the police, how, how conspicuous is that, right? I mean, you're there's just a couple girls driving in a car together that aren't going to cooperate. But, you know, um, so it's, it's that level of protection. And then the bottom bitch will also oftentimes be the one that's handling the phones. And so it's another layer of protection. So even if you get to the pimp's phone, you're not going to find anything in it. Mm-hmm. So it's wow. kind of an additional layer of security, and that's a, I know it's a very demeaning uh, term, but that's the, that's the term in the industry is it's called the bottom bitch, and so um, it's a, that those are becoming more and more prominent. So if you have three or five girls, one of those is probably the bottom bitch that's handling all the communication, posting the ads, dropping these girls off, picking them up, and while the pimp sits at home. Are they abusive as well? I mean, I'm sure they're. Emotionally and verbally, but physically. A lot of times the bottom bitch are more physically abusive than the pimps are. Wow, wow. And so the pimps will tell the bottom bitch, hey, if you don't get this girl in line, then I'm going to I'm gonna deal with you. And so the, the, this girl, this bottom bitch, um, does what she needs to do to keep her job um, and to keep from being assaulted. And so they're, they're oftentimes more dangerous and aggressive than the actual pimps themselves. Will they call themselves that term? Absolutely, and they're proud of it. Man. So then they, yep. now there's a hierarchy like, right. oh, if I, if I do this for so long, then maybe yeah. I can move up and be the bottom bitch. And right. then absolutely loyal and stick right. around. It's a promotion. And they're uh, absolutely, absolutely correct. Wow. It's an interesting dynamic that I still, I've been doing it a while and still can't wrap my mind around. That's uh, the level of control that uh, it's, just, it's indescribable. Well... I, I'm emotionally taxed right now, <laughs> in a good way, in, in some ways. But I, well, can you can you just lay it out just like real quick? What me as a firefighter paramedic can look for, what I can do, just to summarize. I mean, you said most of it, but I just want to make sure everyone has it. I think I would say first and foremost, it's it, it's um, just when your spidey senses go up, and you just through your job that when you when you deal with this the type of job that you guys have and that I have, you just develop a, a I think a, mm-hmm. a, a quality that you can't, you don't learn in a class. You just learn it through um, repetition of dealing with human behavior. And so uh, don't dismiss that when you, when you feel like that is happening, um, just get in on the front end of it, like we talked about and just get some form of documentation and just make sure it's reported to somebody. Um, I, I'd say first and foremost that if anything else, just get documentation of it. Because, again, those historical reports, um, or you guys will never see the outcome of that. So you may report something and never see or hear from it again. 
but that could be something that I use two or three years down the road that helps me get a case successfully prosecuted. Okay. Awesome. Chad, this has been extremely eye-opening and a lot of really good information that I'm hoping we can get out to the community on our podcast here and just begin to... I don't, I don't even know where to start with the educational component on this. It's no. such a massive need. Um, but It is. And then even just... Uh, making sure these nonprofits are supported mm-hmm. so they can keep doing what they do. So Chad can keep doing what he does yeah, um, all by himself. <laughs> yeah. And I would, I would, I think one last thing I'd recommend for, for you guys is like I said, they're, they're more likely if you, maybe you receive some kind of situation where you're dealing directly with these victims, some kind of victim engagement. Um, I would recommend you're, you're going to pick up on verbal signs and stuff like that. Um, the victims are way more likely to react to someone that's level, non-judgmental. Um, when, when you're listening to them talk, try not to use strategies that uh, intermittently between treating the child as an offender versus a victim. Um, you'd be surprised. Um, it, you may have people opening up to you just by having that kind of demeanor. And we live in a, we work in a profession where judgment is, it's what we do. It's humor. That's why I judge people every day. But when you're dealing with these kind of victims, you have to you have to put that aside because they they've seen more trauma than all of us on this oh, phone yeah. call put together. Mm-hmm. And so um, they know whether or not you're judging them. And if they feel like you are, you're they're going to shut down immediately. So it's trying to trying to maintain that professionalism, recognizing these symptoms, and then being non non judgmental with them is the best practice I can give. That may you guys maybe get a lot more information than what you even think. Totally. I think that, you know, the thing that I was just thinking about in my brain when you were talking about this, uh, some of these things and these signs to look for, we have these, you know, we call them trigger points for um, certain procedures and, you know, things that we do in EMS, um, more advanced procedures. And when your spidey senses are going off, like we've been talking about, that needs to be your trigger point for writing that right. unusual occurrence report or, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, whatever your department's equivalent is of it so that people like Chad can, you know, start the documentation process and really, you know, get a historical that, record going of all the stuff going on with this person. Those spidey senses, you'll forget them tomorrow, yeah. but you won't remember them, right? Correct. So just documenting it uh, immediately because um, you tend to forget that stuff when you go back a couple of days later and you're like, you know, I should probably talk to somebody. Uh, maybe it's just something as simple as writing a couple things down in your, in your, in your notes or whatever, um, but just keeping it fresh and getting and reporting it as quickly as possible. Yeah. Hey, well, let's leave it there. Chad, thank you so much for sharing all this information with us. I feel like it was one of the more educational episodes we've ever done. Absolutely. Probably the most important one in a lot mm-hmm. of ways that we've ever done, especially for I hope it was our helpful. industry. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thanks again. We'll leave it there, and uh, we'll catch you guys on the next one.